Marshall. Hello, Alex Teed. <laughs> Uh, so hello uh dear listener you are listening to why are dads and we are about to talk about the movie what movie sarah based on our voices i mean my batman voice is the same as my demon voice but we're gonna talk about the dark knight and i'm really excited about it i don't think there's a difference between the batman voice and a demon voice (laughs) that's a good point yeah i've been doing this voice for a baby i know who likes the like (sighs) sound and i do like i'm your demon babysitter I can have as many popsicles as I want. (laughs) And the baby likes it, so. Of course the baby (laughs) likes it. Babies love everything. If you do stuff with love, they're just like, this is great. I love it. No, babies love talented impressions, and they do not like (laughs) bad impressions. They have very good taste in impressions. Uh, We are joined today uh, by a lovely, lovely guest, by Aubrey Gordon, who is uh, Mm -hmm. the co-host of Maintenance Phase. Yeah. I'm really happy about that. Yeah, this was the absolute funnest. It was some of the various pieces uh, configured in an in a interesting new way. <laughs> yeah, it was a really lovely kind of slumber party experience. And I feel like our giddiness at just getting to talk about this movie with each other is present in this episode. And I hope that you got some of the glow from that. What are some things that the listener of this upcoming episode, what should they be looking for? Okay, I think that if you like love this movie a lot and if hearing people make fun of it is going to be hard for you, then you should skip this one. If you don't mind hearing people make fun of it, then this is for you because it's about, you know, just talking about like, what is Batman's plan? Is he really going to gut a girlfriend by making someone else be Batman? (laughs) Who is the daddy? Obviously, what kind of worldview does this represent? This episode is very special to me because I think this is the most mean that I've been about a movie that we've talked about on the show. And it's hard for me to express how I both relentlessly need to mock and also am genuinely delighted by this movie. And I, I do hope that we captured that. I feel like we did. I think so, too. I'm, I'm actually interested in the fact that you're warning people a little bit because yeah. I, I listened to this this episode and was surprised based on our conversation how warmly we all received this movie that we're still Mm. very critical of like we are critical of this movie but we're critical of it from the perspective of people who still watch it and and light up a bit while watching it oh yeah I kind of want to watch it tonight and I've obviously seen it quite a few times in preparation for this episode but and I think that is why it was important to me anyway to kind of try and situate this in its political moment because it was like when this movie came out like This is one of those movies that just everybody liked and had something for everyone. And it felt like it just was for, you know, I'm sure the world in many ways, but definitely for the United States in that moment. And now I feel like it matters to look back and be like, we need to talk about who we were when we loved this and when this felt like it was making sense of the world that we were in. And now you look back and you're like, Batman has to be framed. Why? (laughs) yeah we were living in a world where this pitch probably made sense and in retrospect it's very hard to understand why (laughs) yeah it's just weird like i was watching the white house correspondence dinner from 2011 which is the one where you know obama famously made a he went pretty easy in making some jokes on trump and that does appear to be one of the crucial moments and Trump's need to become president out of spite and racism. That's such a weird moment in time now to watch because, like, the jokes don't make sense anymore. 
and they're in reference to things that were like these really odious manufactured scandals, but none of them are about, we have a congressperson who says there's a Jewish space laser. It was like <laughs> the Tea Party wants Obama's birth certificate. And it was like, that was really bad and just a blatant attempt to gin up a fake story about a president who people wanted to dislike or wanted to hate because he was black. And like, that was the beginning of where we are now, but it's, it's like feeling, it's like being those kids in cabin fever and feeling nostalgic for when just little bits of your body were falling off. You're like, oh, we were so cute then. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, that's like very much the very much the beginning of the time that we're in now and the end of the time that uh, the Dark Knight happened in. Can we uh, talk for a second about the Snyder Cut, which is something that happened between us recording this episode and now doing this intro? This is something that I just vaguely know, and I had to ask you to explain it to me the other day, and so I just want to talk about it a little apparently when the Snyder Cut came out which everyone really wanted to happen or a lot of people did and they were like release the Snyder Cut of Justice League because I think people thought there was a good movie in there and I haven't watched it so I don't know if it's true but Outlook Doubtful in my opinion and people were delighted by the fact that in that cut the Joker literally says we live in a society which I learned is like a Joker meme. And I find it funny and kind of unfortunate that throughout this episode we're about to hear, I characteristically have several rants about like, you know, if you live in a society, who do you hold to a higher standard? The crazy guy or the society? And I was like, wait, am I the Joker? <laughs> All right, let's go talk with Aubrey. <laughs> <laughs> Between you and me. I'm not wearing hockey pants. You think that your client, one of the wealthiest, most powerful men in the world, is secretly a vigilante who spends his nights beating criminals to a pulp with his bare hands? And your plan is to blackmail this person? This city just showed you that it's full of people ready to believe in good. He comes at me with the knife. Why so serious? Sticks the blade in my mouth. Let's put a smile on that face. Why do you want to kill me? <laughs> I, I don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? No, no, no. You, you completely me. Oh, hey, one more thing before we begin. Wired Ads is made possible with support from Knack Factory, which is a commercial and creative content and video production company based in Portland, Maine that does work throughout these here United States and elsewhere and also via Patreon. Thank you so much to everyone who is able to support us via Patreon and we have pretty frequent bonus episodes. Uh, this week we are going to have a bonus conversation with Aubrey. Aubrey was good enough to join us for some extra chat time and we really appreciate it and that's patreon.com slash wiredads. If you are able to support financially, we appreciate that so much and if you're not able we absolutely understand it we are just glad that you're along for the why our dad's journey all right let's go talk about the dark knight hello sarah marshall she's drinking the g fuel under the blanket <laughs> we know that it's happening how are you doing i am so great i know that i'm super excited before every movie we talk about but i just really feel like today 
we're going to kill the Batman. <laughs> and I'm going to be licking my lips the whole time. <laughs> and who are we going to talk about this with, Sarah? Okay, I just realized this. We're going to talk about this with one of the internet's own Batmans. <laughs> Bat people. Aubrey Gordon, formerly known as your fat friend. It's like Postmaster's General. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, guys. Hello, Aubrey. Can you just tell us uh, a couple things about yourself? Sure. I am a writer. I'm a columnist. Just released my first book called What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat. And I co-host a podcast with Sarah Marshall's other co-host, Michael Hobbs, called Maintenance Phase, where we sort of debunk diet and wellness industry nonsense Mm -hmm. it's the best i love it so much we have had people be like i don't want to i feel reluctant to listen to all these shows because i feel like i'm facilitating these people cheating on each other we all just have have a thing for each other and it's great and we're gonna have a thing about Batman today. Yeah. Michael's on a business trip and we're all just hanging out. It's you know? fine. He's busy. And Alex and I are a couple of homewreckers. Don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> Can we start this episode by you as concisely as possible? Explain what the Dark Knight is, what Dark Knight, I don't know, the Dark Knight is, and and what the plot is. I will explain it for three hours. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I I was watching it again right before we recorded, and I was like, I don't know. I know I'm going to get asked to describe the plot of this, and I've watched it several times in the past couple of weeks, and I honestly barely know, and I don't care that much. Like, I I feel as if this movie could be called Law & Order Batman. So, okay, the plot is that... Batman is Batmaning around. He this is the only movie in the Nolan trilogy in which we see him just be Batman. This is our only chance to do that. And so he's mm. successful enough that he now has imitators. In the opening scene, he is attacked by dogs, which is great. <laughs> we really open though by watching this bank robbery between this crew of I think six, five or six guys, all of whom take each other out and then get taken out by the guy who reveals himself to be the Heath Ledger Joker. Mm. And it's fantastic. And he takes off his clown mask and he has clown face paint on underneath. And it's great. (laughs) It's like when uh, Renee Zellweger and that other lady took off their coats and down with love. And then they both had the color of each other's (laughs) coats on their dresses. You're like, yay. And whenever Heath Ledger's there, you're having a great time. And then we go to Batman dealing with the new threat of the Joker Batman surveilling Harvey Dent, who's Gotham's new district attorney, who everybody loves, and who is dating Batman's long-term love interest. I don't think they were ever in a relationship, but this lady, Rachel, I think it's very rude of him to never talk about the weird disease or accident that she was in that led her to transform from Katie Holmes to Maggie Gyllenhaal, but that also (laughs) has happened in this movie. They just did a lot of plastic surgery, and they're like, you know, you look great, but you look completely different. And she's like, ah, Bruce won't even notice. What if you looked more indie? (laughs) (laughs) What if you looked like your character had substance, and then we didn't have to write interesting dialogue for you, because you're known for your roles playing well-rounded characters, and people will think that you're playing one now. (laughs) So basically, it's the movie is... Batman, I was trying to put this together. Batman meets Harvey Dent. They seem to hate each other. There's a real frenemies vibe. And then Batman's like, I know. 
Harvey Dent will take over my Batman duties, and then I will retire as Batman, and then I can take his girlfriend and that's kind of his plan yeah that's actually kind of the plot and then the joker guts in the way basically there's some real incel logic happening in batman's brain it doesn't matter where she wants to go no there's another man he's in the way when i remove the other man then the woman is mine yes. like ah no it is a lot like oceans 11 i think where like as an audience member you're like well this one woman is torn between two jerks and one of them I know better (laughs) and I'm on the side of the jerk who's the main character in this movie so sure I like I find Harvey Dent very I can't imagine wanting to date him like what what do you think of pre-transformation Harvey oh god no that's a hard no (laughs) the vibe that I got from Harvey Dent in his sort of like pre two-face scenes in this was that he would be the kind of guy that you would get drinks with and he would talk about how like nobody at his job knows what they're doing and he's the one who does. Do you know what I mean? Where I'm like, that's not a vibe that I'm into. Mm -hmm. He's the loudest and most consistent and self-assured person in a a 200-level philosophy class. Yes. (laughs) He like constantly has some platitude to say. is very charismatic in other roles so i know that this is not just him being an uncharismatic person but like Mm. lending his abilities to play someone unpleasant but i don't know i just was watching him in the early scenes and i was like yeah i can see you going completely crazy and just going on a killing spree after (laughs) suffering facial burns and i also love how harvey dent in gotham where the ratio of supervillains to citizens is quite high is going around like, my girlfriend died, so I get to kill people. And it's like, you're a district attorney. Like, you of all people should understand that that's not convincing mitigation in a world where most people have lost a girlfriend to a supervillain, I bet. Obviously, we talk about, like, masculinity and where it's broken in this movie. It's so many overlapping portraits of it at once. It's almost like a taxonomy yeah. of, like, bad masculinity. You know what I mean? Where you're like, oh, you could have the commissioner gordon kind of bad masculinity or you could have the lucius fox kind of like dysfunctional masculinity or you can have the batman like there's like so many options for like how to be bad at being a dude yeah right so batman has a plan he's a batman with a bat plan (laughs) he is going to give his batman duties to the district attorney which doesn't make sense. <laughs> Who outwardly believes in fascism, by the way, and talks about it a lot. Yes, I know. And then they have his girlfriend be like, Harvey, fascism is bad. And he's like, whatever. And then they just move on. So Batman has a plan to steal the DA's girlfriend by outsourcing his vigilante duties to more effective prosecution, which I really didn't know was an option for him. (laughs) So that's his plan. And then there emerges a new supervillain called the Joker. And there is a famous speech given by Michael Caine, who plays Alfred and who is talking about how a long time ago he was in Burma, which is probably why he doesn't call it Myanmar. And presumably the Brits were attempting to use jewels to bribe local heads of local populations, something like that, like some kind of colonialist something, something. But that's not the point. The point is that Alfred was helping to figure out who were these bandits that were stealing these jewels that were going to be used to pay off the locals so that the Brits could do whatever they were trying to do. And he says, 
you know, Batman, like, I really think you don't understand this criminal that you're reckoning with because some men can't be bullied or bribed or whatever. Some men just want to watch the world burn. <laughs> I, that was a bad impression, but I really wanted to try it. And you're like, no, like maybe the bandit was stealing the jewels because he didn't want British colonialists <laughs> invading his country. And he did have a plan and you just didn't understand where he was coming from. And you just assumed that he just wanted to watch the world burn, which is also interesting about the Joker, because he's like, I don't have a plan. I'm an agent of chaos, which people seem to believe. But, like, he's very good at planning heists. Extremely. <laughs> like, he's on the level of Robert De Niro in Heat. <laughs> it's like ballet. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like he's, like, doing Swan Lake, but as heists or as whatever. Like, it's really incredible. It's beautiful. When this movie first came out, I was not enamored in the way I am now of the part where he gets that school bus perfectly out with the other school buses. Oh, I love it. It's so beautiful. As an adult, you're like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, the Joker claims to have no plan, but basically embarks on this crusade of terrorism. And he says, for every day, the Batman, which is what we all agree to call him in Nolan's world, for every day the Batman doesn't unveil himself, I will kill another Gothamite. And so he goes after the fake Batman, and he kills a judge, and he kills the police commissioner, which is how Gordon gets a promotion. Basically, this culminates in a night of events where Harvey Dent has taken the fall for being Batman. Maggie Gyllenhaal, shockingly, doesn't want to be with Bruce Wayne now that he's given up his Batman duties, because she actually gets to decide who she wants to be with. And the Joker kidnaps both Harvey and Maggie, and Batman has to decide who he's going to save. And so he decides to go save Maggie. The Joker, apparently knowing that he was going to do this or just, you know, deciding to be a... Because he's mean. The Joker's mean. He has switched them. So in trying to save Maggie Gyllenhaal, he accidentally saves Harvey Dent. Mm. And Maggie just gets blown up, which it was the only thing that ultimately was going to be able to happen for her because she just, I don't know, that movie did not, they were like, we need a woman, but then what? I don't know. <laughs> and then there's this whole other set piece, which I find really boring, where the Joker has two boats and he has put a bomb and a button you press to detonate the bomb on each boat, and one has civilians and one has criminals. Ooh! If the people on each boat press the button, they can detonate the other boat, and if they get to midnight without either boat pressing a button, they're all going to die. And so his plan, I think, is to prove that people are evil and to psychologically destroy Batman. I hope that it's not lost on our dear listener right now that... The part that you find the most boring is the closest to a saw plot. <laughs> That's very true. And there are some things I like about how that is executed, but I just, if this movie knew it were a saw kind of movie, it would be a very different movie and I would have had a very different kind of a time. <laughs> That is what it's missing, is a level of self-awareness. <laughs> just, like, taking joy in the thing that it is. Because, yeah, and what happens is that, in the end, Harvey Dent wakes up, half of his face is spectacularly burnt off. It really is fantastic looking. I remember mm. just being delighted by how, how all in they went. Like, you can see a whole eyeball. It's great. Yes, And then he it. goes around killing people, and then the Joker 
kills Maggie Gyllenhaal, and then the people on the boats, none of them press the button because people are good sometimes, which is my personal belief. And then the Joker is just left hanging upside down off of a building for the SWAT team to collect, basically. And he just tells Batman, like, you complete me, and I don't want to kill you. And we balance each other, and Batman's like, I don't care, I fear intimacy, bye! (laughs) And then there's, like, this final standoff where... And I didn't realize this until this year, where Harvey Dent dies. He gets pushed off a building and and dies in a very shadowy and anticlimactic way. Because I always thought, for some reason, that they just didn't explain where he ended up because they wanted to keep it open to, like, do Harvey Dent for the final movie. That was what I assumed for some reason at the time. But he's dead. Batman and Commissioner Gordon are left. And Commissioner Gordon, played by Gary Oldman, who is just fine in this is like, well, I'm going to give this final speech that really doesn't make sense about how we have to let Batman take the fall for all the murders Harvey Dent committed because it would demoralize them to know that the district attorney, who citizens of every major American city know what his name is and care about him a lot, (laughs) if they knew he went on a killing spree, it would demoralize the whole city forever. And also all of his cases would be thrown out because that's how the law works. And we have to let Batman, who was a folk hero, take the fall for everything and be chased into the night because he can take it. Okay, so that was beautiful. That was phenomenal. Thank you. That was hard to do. It also feels like foreshadowing of a bunch of the weird plot nonsense that would show up in later Christopher Nolan movies, most recently Tenet, right? Mm. Where like people are going to see Tenet and they're like, what is it about? I don't know. And Inception is about Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Tom Hardy running around in upside down hallways and it's a lovely action movie that thinks it's about stuff and i'm like i don't care about the stuff (laughs) sure interstellar similar sort of like what is huh what (laughs) when a dude who doesn't like to talk about feelings wants to make a movie about love he's like no it's about space like okay okay (laughs) yeah That's what the ideology feels like it comes from. The collection of things you described described in the media that I know about and the movies, the movies of his that I've seen, which is all of them minus Tenet, feels like a person who is very much under the belief that they are saying a series of layered, interesting things in a highly entertaining way. And that is the origin of their ideology, not an ideology and they get rewarded for it again and again and like his movies really are i think they're all like that the sort of joy in uh and being hard to follow and like i know i'm just an american rube but like i think speed is the perfect action movie because it's three (laughs) movies in one there are real world stakes and you basically always know why people are doing what they're doing like mostly during this movie during the dark night i'm like why are we doing this? I don't really know, but it's fun to watch. (laughs) (laughs) So I've watched this movie a lot of times. I really enjoy this movie. Hmm. This was the first time that I noticed how much sort of ridiculous, like fast and the furious level action movie (laughs) nonsense is in here. Like there's this point at which they're in a fight in a parking garage. It's within the first like 20 or 30 minutes. They're clearly on the like, 
I don't know, fifth or 10th floor of this parking structure. And the Batmobile just like drives in through the wall like there's street yeah. outside. <laughs> like what? And that scene's also amazing because the fake Batman is there and he's like, why are you different from me? And Batman's like, because I'm not wearing hockey pants. <laughs> and then he drives the Batmobile away and you're like, I appreciate that he knows that the only reason he's Batman is because he's rich. <laughs> <laughs> It also feels like it's a person who had 150% of the great ideas that could possibly rest in a movie and have breathing room. And like it's been commented on a thousand times about how the Two-Face plot just feels like it's literally just like a 45 minutes that they attached at the end of another movie and didn't mm. flesh it out totally. But yeah, one of my favorite comic book movies is Logan. And I think the reason for that is someone was like, there's so many cool things that happen in superhero movies. What if we gave the themes some space to breathe over the course <laughs> of two hours and gave you, you know, places to put something Because so... There are maybe five cool things that happen every five minutes in this movie to the point where it's so disoriented. Yeah. Yeah. And sounds great, though. It sounds the sound is chef's kiss. The sound is amazing. I was really appreciating it this time. Like, I think the music is great. Everyone always talks about that. I do give Hans Zimmer a hard time because I think repetitive growling is like easy to use to stress out a viewer. But like, whatever. But like the sound design, I think, is really amazing in this. Mm, yeah. It's phenomenal. Everything sounds like clicking and clanking and crunching yeah. of the stuff yes. that he uses, right? Like all of his little like gadgetry stuff. Yeah. They do a great job of miking up like when the like however they did the sound on the transformation of the Batmobile. I was yeah. like, oh, yeah. I want that sound as like my text tone. Like <laughs> it's just so great. It feels very embodied. I was thinking about the difference in place between the different Batman directors and how Tim Burton's thing is kind of, I want to say like WPA Detroit look where they have these yes. huge like statues of workers and just very gothic and kind of out of time, um, even though they're using 90s technology. But I feel like like this Batman takes place in what I can only describe as like a very clean Chicago. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think that that's right. And like without color, like without pretty graffiti or anything it's just all beige and steel yeah clean chicago where it's always nighttime yeah. <laughs> you know, it's never the day i hope you don't like the sun they're like we mean it literally it's a dark night it is <laughs> yeah, throughout yeah, start yeah, to finish yeah. in case you didn't get the two layers of meaning happening here <laughs> so okay so we said at the beginning that there are just an amazing amount of layers of the things that we typically talk about in the show, but even more on the nose, I didn't realize how much the just literal dad theme was throughout this movie. Like mm. Alfred is Batman's dad. Batman's the city's dad. Gordon's also the city's dad. Mm. We have um, Dent trying to be the city's dad and it not really working out. There's a series of very Bush era conversations around what you have to do about liberty and personal freedom as a means of keeping people safe and what people's expectations are and like what the trades are what does this movie have to say about paternalistic responsibility 
you're totally right. Harvey Dent is like damaged dad, mm. damaged wannabe dad who never quite makes it happen. Lucius Fox, who is Morgan Freeman's character, is sort of like company man, principal, no frills dad. Dad who's not mad at you, but he is disappointed. Mm. Competent dad. And he's kind of the dad of the corporation, too. You're like, he's taking care of it. It's fine. Totally. The Joker, I think, is like when an abused child grows up, mm -hmm. maladaptive. The thing that I walked away from that movie feeling like this time around was, oh, all of those are failed. Mm. None of those actually function. Even the one that provides the movie's resolution doesn't feel especially functional, right? Like, it doesn't resolve all of these tensions around, as you were saying, like sort of Bush era anxieties around like the Patriot Act and all that sort of stuff, like feels right. like it looms very large in this movie. And no one really solves it. It does feel sort of like a, like an oops all dads. Like, <laughs> you know, like, just like very, just like, oh, everybody's a dad. Also, because there are no women. Right. There's one, there's one lady. I hope you like that one lady. And and then, and there she goes. <laughs> yeah. She's basically there exclusively to be a grief vehicle. Yeah. So that we can then see messy grief dad right she's a plot device more than like a person yeah the only other place we see women is on bruce's arm and there's always several at one time oh right prima ballerinas this is a weird scene where they're on the yacht with the ballerinas to get the alibi because like first of all i feel like ballerinas are supposed to avoid getting tan lines mm -hmm. bruce seems uninterested in them like maybe he was at some other point but this man doesn't have sex no, he does not. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, his <laughs> no. love interest is a woman who rejected him three years ago or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I do appreciate that, that Batman is, like, overtly wounded in that way and that we see that. But then Alfred also doesn't want to put suntan lotion on the ballerinas. And you're like, does this whole movie not want to put suntan lotion on a ballerina? And can we talk about why the ballerinas are there? The ballerinas are there because Harvey was going to take his new girlfriend, who's Batman's <laughs> love interest, to the, the ballet. Uh -huh. And Batman's power move as Bruce Wayne was to invite the entire ballet on his yacht so they could hang out. And then Harvey and girlfriend could not see the ballet. Because then maybe that'll stop them from having sex for, for just that one night. Who knows? It could work. <laughs> this movie does end... With a, a bit of a thesis, mm. it ends just with a big hug around Bush-era politics. Like, this movie yeah. loves all of the dads acknowledge that some shenanigans need to happen under the radar as a means of upholding liberty and freedom, mm -hmm. which is the, the whole Bush thing. And we hear of Batman who's, who is inexplicably taking the fall. Because everyone's going to feel good about that, about Batman being a murderer. <laughs> Because everyone will feel let down that, that it's nuts. But Gordon, the dad, explains to his son why Batman, the dad, had to do this for the city. And he says, Batman is the hero Gotham deserves, but not the one they need right now because he can take it. He's not a hero. He's a silent guardian, a watchful protector, a dark knight, which is a dad explaining why he's a martyr. 
Huh. I don't know if Christopher Nolan is a dad. Yeah, he is. Okay, his thought about being a dad is like, you are a martyr. People are going to shit on you. You have to break the rules in order to keep everything going. Like, mm. if there are enemies at the gate, he says this in the movie, if there are enemies at the gates, <laughs> you have to suspend democracy, even though it's mm-hmm. pointed out that what happens after democracy is suspended is it is suspended forever. Well, the lady who said that got blown up, so who cares? <laughs> Sounds like a loser (laughs) at the end of the movie it says yeah well you know sometimes you just gotta torture a couple of people and and kill about uh, three three or four hundred thousand i could talk for an hour about what does it mean when commissioner gordon says he's the hero gotham deserves but not the one it needs right now like what does that mean i don't know what that means It's movie dialogue is what it is. Yeah, it's code for we need to wrap this puppy up. (laughs) Did Nolan write this? Was it like him and his brother or something? He co-wrote it, yeah. That's something written by a man who felt misunderstood as an artist for a long time. Mm. That's something that like a literal 90s indie film guy wrote. He's like, I put this movie out and it's what people need, but not right now. Like right. And it's like, no, it's what people need right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's also sort of Christopher Nolan's whole MO, which is like, if you don't get it, that's on you. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? Like, if you don't like it, that's because you don't get it, is sort of the vibe of all of these movies, right? Of yes. Inception and Tenet and all of those sorts of like projects and Interstellar all of it right is sort of this like hey man I made this really complicated thing that's about what's in my soul if if you're not on board with that then like that just means you just like haven't ascended to this level yet tends to be sort of like the culture around it whether or not that's his actual intention so I think I'm especially confused in this movie by the phrase he's the hero Gotham deserves because maybe this wasn't the intention, but I feel as if this movie kind of hates Gothamites. Yes, yes. And if it doesn't hate them, it is just utterly indifferent to them. Like, I have no idea what these people are like. I was actually wondering, I was like, is there a Gotham accent? Or did a lot of people relocate from New York, especially if they're gangsters? Oh, my God. It feels like it hates Gothamites, but it particularly feels like it hates Gotham government. Mm. This is like such a deeply, deeply, deeply anti-government movie right yes harvey dent is like the one competent person and he's like not great and then he becomes a murderer but we don't talk about it then he becomes a murderer (laughs) the courts are overloaded cops are sort of hapless right like even on the boats right even when the boats are sort of trying to decide whether or not to blow each other up they try to vote and it doesn't really work on like whether or not they should blow up the other boat right like it's just like one failure after another of government and it feels like deeply deeply libertarian to me yeah and it also makes sense that Batman would be so punished for believing that he could hand off his duties to the DA, which it makes no sense. Like, I just have to highlight how little sense this makes that, like, it is not the district attorney's job to, like, beat people up in parking lots. But I think we're living in a, I don't know, maybe in America people do think that. That's what their job is metaphorically. And then he's punished for that because the movie's like, you thought an elected official could take care of crime no only throwing eric roberts off of a fire escape will work (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so here's the thing that i'm curious about there are definitely all of these like very american bush era post-September 11th kind of anxieties that are getting processed in this movie. Yeah. The other thing that's getting processed in this movie, and what I think is a really interesting way, 
is what is the origin story of psychopathy, Mm. right? Which is sort of like what we're talking about when we're talking about the Joker and what we're talking about when we're talking about a number of characters in this movie. Mm -hmm. This shows up in a couple of different ways, right? I think probably the biggest one is the explanations for the Joker's scar, Mm -hmm. the sort of trademark scars that he has that sort of extend his mouth into this big creepy grin that he gives different answers two times mm-hmm. right and then the third time batman just like pushes him off a roof or whatever <laughs> like, i can't remember what he does but batman's just like i don't care yeah like, i really appreciate that this movie does not actually give you answers yes. to that and when it does they are unsatisfying yeah like, i think that the origin story of harvey dent is an unsatisfying origin story because that's us watching an origin story happen and you're just like okay <laughs> I just appreciate that this movie deals with sort of the idea of this menacing character. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, yeah, we don't actually know where this guy comes from. We don't know his background. We just know that he's here and we got to figure out what to do. Yes. That feels like a more honest answer than we get from a lot of movies that sort of tangle with the same idea of sort of like, where does quote unquote evil come from? Mm -hmm. Where does quote unquote psychopaths come from? It feels more honest to me to be like, we don't actually know. And that's the unsettling thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I appreciate that part, but I'm curious about how that bit about the scars, the sort of explanation of the scars landed for you too. Even watching it after many times and knowing that the first time you hear the story, it's going to be contradicted by the next one. They're still very powerful stories. And I think they really work. It also reminds me of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, another great Chicago film, where we have, you know, our our Henry serial killer who also tells multiple mutually exclusive accounts of, you know, just how did he kill his mama and why is he the way that he is? And I don't think we actually want to know why people do awful things because the answer is often like, well, we didn't have any funding for seeing if children are being abused in the home or it wasn't a crime at the time. I was actually reading about Mommy Dearest and there's a story about like Christina Crawford trying to basically escape when, you know, Joan Crawford would like try to strangle her and stuff and a cop saying to her like, well, you just got to stick it out until you're 18, sweetie, because if you get in trouble again, they'll lock you up and uh, your mom's allowed to strangle you if she wants. It's different when you're an adult, but not now. Bye. If we want to talk about improving society and creating a bigger government in some ways to deal with those problems, we could. But, like, we love having a fake answer, which is, like, his girlfriend died. Yeah. (laughs) I think Harvey's resilience was the problem. (laughs) Yes. That Mommy Dearest story feels reminiscent of the Jeffrey Dahmer escape story of one of the folks that he picked up. Two people. Two people? Did two people get away? Yeah, and the second guy who escaped, the police were actually like, this seems suspicious. But the the first victim who escaped, yeah, he found two two young black women or, or teenage girls who kind of encountered him and hailed down the police. And the police took him back to Dahmer's house and were like, well... It's really weird. This is a weird situation, but we don't know what gays are like. This is probably it. Yeah, totally. And basically that was Dahmer's explanation, right? Was he was like, oh, we're gay and it's like a gay thing. And they were like, all right, bye. Yeah. Right? Like, this is what this is what gays do. They chase their their very young looking, very drugged seeming sexual partners into the street naked while wearing handcuffs. It's a gay thing. Totally. And it's much easier to have a conversation that's just like, I don't know, he's crazy. Yeah. Right? <laughs> then to go, okay, actually we had like some really precise 
concise and serious like failures in law enforcement and this is actually a problem of having straight people in charge of gay people Mm. without really being comfortable enough to be around gay people yeah and then that like one of the cops who who helped return one of Dahmer's victims to him who then you know obviously the, the obvious consequences of that then happened immediately that guy, I think last summer there was a story that he was president of the police union or had been for a long time in Milwaukee. Yeah. He got like a decorated retirement and he was a police officer in Kenosha right after the Kenosha Ugh, yeah. protest stuff. Well, in the words of Stevie Nicks, lightning strikes maybe once, maybe twice. <laughs> <laughs> and it all comes down to you. <laughs> and ultimately what that I think reveals is that like, these questions of individual evil or individual behavior or whatever are actually less important than like, if we had a society that took care of people who had problems, then like their problems would be less of a problem. And also I feel as if like in the same way that I love how the Saw movies kind of allow you, like never attempt overtly to stop you from just coming up with the interpretation that John Kramer had no plan at any time and it was just a man dying of a frontal lobe tumor, which notably impact your decision-making skills. We're allowed to watch this trilogy and be like, so Batman set up shop in a city that was definitely struggling, but was also, you know, doing okay, like hanging on. And he basically in a few short years turned it into a police state. Right. I have a hard time extracting these movies from Bush anything. And this came out in 2008. So this is like a valedictory look back at the past eight years. I don't know when it was written in the context of Obama's ascent, but like Dent is Obama in a lot of ways. So it's hard. It's hard to extract those things. But like there are on the reads about what Aubrey just said, where it's like the origin story of the Joker changes. I don't think Christopher Nolan is smart enough to have been making these statements and I'm reverse putting them on. But like the origin story for the reason to go into Iraq changed several times mm-hmm. right like the origin story for that evil changed it changed four times in the course of three months in public and people were just like all right i guess we're just doing this mm-hmm. so to create that monster like it has that overlap there which is particularly interesting and like i was it, probably like anyone who from the get-go was like this is a bad idea was always confused why that didn't rattle some more cages but it didn't rattle more cages because of a thing that the joker says in this movie like a, a lot of the things that the joker says in this movie you can accidentally become a person who takes it too seriously and thinks that he's saying some good shit like people do about like Mm -hmm. Thanos in the the Marvel movies he says some correct things and one of the correct things he says is essentially like people will go along with anything as long as it's going to plan even if the plan is horrible Mm. the Joker sorry that I'm making so many Marvel connections but also I've been really nerdy into Norse mythology like the Joker's the Loki character in this too because like the Joker's not necessarily good or bad he is just an agent of chaos who goes around and reflects to people what they are in one way or another. And he is maybe like an anarcho-libertarian in this movie, but he's correct in saying like, people will do anything as long as it seems like it's kind of part of the structure. So like, let's go along and he's kind of wrong as we see portrayed in this movie. Mm -hmm. Let's go along and like fuck up the structure a little bit and see how people act. And this is the thing we talked about in the Saw episodes is like, you know, as soon as we get into horror franchises where we're describing the person's backstory, I'm 
out. I'm just not interested anymore. It is, I don't need to know more about Michael Myers, mm-hmm. third cousin. It, I don't need to know it. And so I like that what this does is exactly as Aubrey pointed out is like, it gives you a couple origin stories. It's like, these might be true. They might not be true. It doesn't fucking matter. Isn't this guy wild? Yeah. And I don't want to, uh, in any of the criticism that I've offered, overlook the fact that like this Joker's so fun. He's so fun. And he's funny. Like, the Joker often, because he dresses like a clown, he's like, I don't have to be funny. And it's like, okay, whatever. But, like, this guy is like, the clown look is muted, so I'm just going to be a funny guy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just the moment of him, like, uh, turning around in the hospital dressed as a candy striper, (laughs) exquisite. And the fact that they managed to do that without making it, like, a, like, super transphobic like man in a dress moment sure. i was like yeah good work look at you you did it you avoided the landmines cheers team yeah right. and he's like he's like coordinated in a fun way like his like his, his outfit is great <laughs> oh yeah i love the line like when they have him at the station we have a shot of like all the knives he somehow had in his pockets or just on his person getting lined up and they're like it's very much like when john doe gets taken in in seven they're like all his clothes are custom made and nothing in his pockets but knives and lint (laughs) i will say while we're talking about delightful bad acting i mean not like not like Bad, whatever. Acting like a bad guy. <laughs> Delightful bad behavior. Yes. I will say that around the release of this movie is when we got that release of the recording of Christian Bale unloading on the sound or the director of photography. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Do you guys remember this moment? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I remember this happening and I remember not even listening to it because I was like, I know... I believe, I appreciate that he's doing bad stuff and he has anger issues and I don't support that. But also, like, I want to be able to keep emotionally relying on Newsies and this is going to make it harder for me. (laughs) So I guess kind of compartmentalized it. But I would love to hear about it now. I feel like I'm strong enough. (laughs) Fair. As a person who just does not enjoy shouting out of anger. Mm -hmm. Always makes me feel real skittish. I don't enjoy it. It is hard to listen to. Uh... But also... It is very funny to me. So, like, the things... It's not a funny instance. He's being awful. Um, I just want to be incredibly clear about that. Mm -hmm. But the way that he's being awful is very funny to me. He is yelling in a way that would be immature for a grade schooler. Where he just goes... Oh, good. Good for you. Like, uh, like just like this, like dripping with sarcasm, weirdness. And he goes like, Jesus. oh, look at you. You're just going on like, doo, 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 doo. like, you're like what? what is happening? So it's very funny to me to think about this, like very well-respected actor who's at the top of his field, a grown man, award winning in all of these ways, going doo, 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 like <laughs> to another adult man. Yes. <laughs> Which this movie could have had more of, honestly. Like, I mean, I think one of Batman's problems is that he's never allowed to be funny. And, like, never in his life will he have an adventure where he has to or gets to be funny. Although I'd love to hear about when that happens or comes close to happening in in comic book plots. The funniest thing he says, he and Alfred are going up some elevator thing. Mm -hmm. And Alfred says, like, something like, I'm going to go to jail for being an accomplice. And Wayne says, accomplice, I'm going to tell them this was all your idea. And it's oddly 
funny for how weirdly joyless this man is the entire time. This man whose entire existence is defined by being angry that his parents died when he was 10 years old and that his girlfriend from three years ago is now with another person. I also wonder, you guys have done a couple more Batman movies than this, and it's been a minute since I've seen the ones that precede the Nolan trilogy. Is this the origin of the Batman voice? The like, like that? voice they had it in batman begins and i and keaton's definitely doing some kind of a voice but this is this is a hang-up i have about the nolan batman i'm incredibly hard on christian bale in this role i think partly because he's publicly ashamed of having been in newsies and i'm like newsies was better than this and you sounded less silly in it i have to say like i would rather he sang everything than do that batman voice that he does because like it never works for me it's never not distracting the whole time I'm just like Bruce like are you gonna are you gonna get polyps or what yeah well and then in the next film they graduate to the Bane voice which is like even more bonkers I do love the Bane voice yeah and I love how it's just like a Sean Connery basically but it's something else they really should have had a bit where someone hears that man talk for the first time and just laughs at him (laughs) imagine being a cop and there's this man doing all this shit and and you're like what the fuck did you just say to me <laughs> it's such a bonkers voice and especially in lines like because i'm not wearing hockey pants <laughs> right like where you're like what that voice doesn't say hockey pants you seem like a really cool guy who should be doing this like i also think like this movie does really casting that really does a good job of making the script seem stronger than it is. Like I would watch Morgan Freeman grocery shop for about an hour and I would have a great time. And like, I don't think that Alfred in this really, I could not say what kind of a person he is. He's witty. He's funny. And he just is completely and utterly loyal to Bruce. And that's really all I know. I guess he seems like he has more of a character in this because Michael Caine is so lovely to watch and just feels just has a dimensional presence I feel like yeah totally agreed there was like not quite enough Michael Caine for me there was not quite enough Morgan Freeman's character for me I was like this is a really fascinating portrait of like a company man yes right is sort of the Morgan Freeman kind of vibe he's definitely like the most competent person yes in this movie do you know what i mean just in terms of like getting things done and knowing how to do things and being a go-to like it's very true that he is sort of like straight up knows how to run things and like just handles things that moment with the guy who wants to blackmail bruce wayne (laughs) is a great moment of (laughs) lucius just being like oh sweetie no honey yes yes there should be a lucius show because i feel as if he's sort of like the casino manager figure of it all like he's the guy who has to go between and like get this technology like it has to be harder than what we're seeing everyone who is in kind of a daddish role in this movie in you know taking out taking out the bush context just about responsibility there is a lot of commentary about how there's stuff that has to happen above board and then there's stuff that has to happen below board like starting with The bank that gets robbed is a bank, yes, but it's also a mob bank. Mm -hmm. Everything has a layer of like what's happening above the surface and what's happening below the surface. What's the movie say about responsibility? It's like you have to do stuff (laughs) above board and have character, 
but also you have to have like a secret R&D department in your corporation where you can privately develop weaponry. Like what is it? Mm -hmm. What does it have a statement accidentally? I mean, I think it's statement is, but ultimately you got to crack a few eggs if you want to make an omelet, right? (laughs) Like that seems to be sort of the vibe of this movie is like, Look, nobody likes surveillance, but we're going to do it if it gets our guy. Yes. Mm-hmm. It definitely feels like very steeped in that kind of like Guantanamo debate. Yeah. Interestingly, came out before the Snowden leaks, right? Like yeah. several years before all of the NSA stuff, which feels really fascinating to me. Because that was under Obama that we found that out. Yeah, under under Harvey. Um, Harvey <laughs> Wholeface. this idea that you were like covering your bases by sort of debating or seeming to debate the topic and then being like but of course we have to surveil everyone and it's fine because morgan freeman is doing it and who would you feel better about surveilling you no one the end you know that feels very early law and order to me where they kind of especially in like the early season episodes which are the ones closest to my heart because they're clumsy and weird and they have some kind of transparent like the cops on the street will be debating this concept very openly of like if someone is abused, does that give them the right to kill their abuser? Maybe. And then in the end, they're like, no, it's not okay at all. The end. Yeah. And you're like, well, I guess they entertain the idea. And it's like, did they entertain it or attempt to sort of trouble your conceptions significantly? Or was this sort of like a, a symbolic offering? It didn't strike me just until just now. Law and Order is just unrealistically 90% a bunch of cops talking about the philosophical rationale for the things that they do. Yes. Like it's their conversation that they would be having at the office. I'm sure that's what they do. Yeah. Oh, the first like four seasons of Law and Order SVU are just like Christopher Maloney being like, I'm a Catholic. Here's what I think. Where you're just like, what? It's like, what if we could combine Dragnet with the McLaughlin group? <laughs> and then Ice-T is just there to ask, like, exposition questions, but not really have opinion. Oh yeah. Mariska Argate gets to be like, and I'm a woman. <laughs> As we're talking about this, I'm realizing the degree to which Jack McCoy, the Sam Anderson character, is Batman. Yeah. Like, he is the Batman of that crew, which is just like, I don't care, I'm going to do what needs to be done. You're not going to always like it, but here we are. He's a bad lawyer, man. Like, he's like the prosecutorial version of Perry Mason. Like, he does not have a strategy. I don't think he really plans stuff out. He just, you know, like, 20 minutes before court, shot a scotch, get in there, intimidate (laughs) some people, you know, bark about morals, point. And then, you know, eventually they take a deal. Right. Yeah. Like just about any cop show or law enforcement show, including The Sinner, which we were talking about earlier off mic. It is this like deep willingness to believe that actually people who are in law enforcement in any capacity are in it to find the real answers and the real people who did the really bad things. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. and the system may be corrupt, but they are not. And like we put our faith in the individual Batman's origin story is that he originally, you know, was a detective that has been, I think, what he is this entire time, like that systems aren't the answer and that the lone man, the lone detective, the lone vigilante, like the point is that he's doing it by himself. And there's a line that I find so interesting when he's talking about giving his jobs to Harvey and Alfred's like, I think he says something about like, what about the fake Batmans? Like, what about that? And Batman's like, you know, that's not what I meant when I said I wanted to inspire people. And I was like, well, if people are inspired to dress like you and beat up criminals like you 
and be vigilantes like you. Like, so did you want to inspire them less? Like, and I feel like he's really saying like, no, but I want to do it. <laughs> what did cosplayers ever do to you, man? Yeah. <laughs> There's something especially dark about kind of superhero movie directors seeming to dislike fans. And it's like, I don't know what side you think your budget is buttered on, sweetie. <laughs> did either of you see the Joaquin Phoenix Joker? I did not. And I'm curious about how it compares, because, like, I, yeah, I was just like, uh, I don't care about the Joker as a character that much. And I, I love Heath Ledger as the Joker, but I don't know. I think, and this is another kind of half-life of this movie thing, too. I'm very creeped out by the fact that we had a shooting at the premiere of The Dark Knight Rises, where the gunman was inspired by some Joker iteration, was doing a Joker kind of a thing. And I think the feeling that a lot of people had anticipating the Joaquin Phoenix Joker movie was like, it's going to inspire incels and mass shootings and blah, blah, blah. And then people were like, no, it's not about that. And I haven't seen it, so I don't know. But I'm just like, well, I do think it's reasonable it's just to fear, like, not maybe the content of the movie so much as what happened at the last premiere of a Nolan Batman, which really, I remember, like, going to see because my boyfriend at the time was a comic book guy, and so we, we went to a lot of midnight premieres or releases of things. And so we went and then, like, walked home, and I remember I was, like, reading the news at 3.30 in the morning and reading about just, you know, this massacre in Colorado that had just happened to people exactly like us who just wanted to watch a movie exactly like us, just, like, Gothamite plebeians just wanted to see some cool stuff happen for three hours. It feels like the two sort of biggest sort of rival joker performances there's also the jared leto one but that one but that one no one seems to want to defend (laughs) (laughs) that's right that's exactly right so i was just curious about how you all felt about those two i mean like the thing that i think is both interesting and profoundly uninteresting about the joaquin phoenix joker movie so Mm -hmm. i went to see it like opening weekend Mm -hmm. at a theater in east county in portland Mm -hmm. and there were two kevlar up cops at the entrance to the theater like yeah. so to your point about sort of this crime right mm-hmm. so to your point about this mass shooting that fear was alive and well enough in portland oregon yeah. which in a portland oregon movie theater which feels like maybe one of the sleepiest places to be mm. yeah uh, they had deployed like again not security like cops like cops were at the movie theater which is just real wild i mean the thing about the joaquin phoenix joker movie that stayed with me was i was like this is the origin story that we don't get in the dark knight us not getting that origin story is i think part of why i find this movie so satisfying Mm. you don't get to know where this guy comes from and also the joaquin phoenix one is like he's got a real frigid mother and people are mean to him and where you're just like okay yeah let's blame a series of women i felt like with that movie like I would have a responsibility to feel a certain way and weigh in on the movie Mm. when I watched America's dialogue about it, which I think was, you know, important or whatever. But like, sometimes you're like, is this actually important? Like, is this conversation that's happening about this? Like, is anything happening as a result? Is like, people are just like angry and yelling and freaking out. And like, do I have to feel responsible with an opinion of a movie by the guy who made road trip about the Joker? Like, I can't deal with it. (laughs) People don't kill people, Alex. Todd Phillips movies kill people. I was like, I can't have this. I guess what's spooky 
about that initial crime and what held me back from going to see the Joker, aside from the fact that it seemed kind of serious and I really am somewhat allergic to serious superhero movies because we're talking about that today. Yeah, there's also this thing of just like, it happened in Colorado, but it also happened in a movie theater. And there's something about being in a movie theater where it's like, you're not where you are, you're in a movie theater. And like, your senses are blocked out and we're now in a moment where we're kind of realizing that like literally everything we used to do was like brave and slutty and amazing. <laughs> I grew up watching the celluloid closet over and over again. Cause IFC was playing it a lot when I was in eighth grade and Susan Sarandon has an amazing moment in that where she's talking about like, well, movies, you know, they're this incredibly vulnerable experience because you go into a room and they turn the lights out and then, you know, you are watching something that transports you to, you know, your dreams and your fears and just, I can't believe it's something that we just used to do all the time and not even think about, but it's like you're surrendering yourself to a collective dream with a group of strangers that you're agreeing to implicitly trust. And we had to have that conversation and people had to be like, I'm afraid to, to see a Todd Phillips movie. <laughs> the problem is that we're living in a country without sufficient gun control that like people don't feel safe going to see a movie. Like this is the kind of thing I feel like I would grow up being taught about like, you know, some other small country that we're supposed to pity. Like that's how they live. And it's like, Hey, it's us. We're doing it. That must've looked from the outside nuts that like we were having a yeah. heated conversation about a Todd Phillips movie because we feel so powerless about doing anything <laughs> surrounding Todd Phillips movies and like the text <laughs> of the movie and like does it support violence or does it not and it's like in a just society Todd Phillips could make whatever stupid movie he wants to and we wouldn't have to worry about it inspiring criminals who then were able to just go out and get whatever tools they wanted without any pushback people should be allowed to make weird art without people being able to do it themselves at home quite so easily. Like I was another thing about this movie about the dark Knight, out of the many movies we've discussed here today <laughs> is that like, speaking of the sound design in it, like the sound of guns in this movie is like, there's a lot of gun sound and it's very effective. I feel like, and that's yes. just, I don't know if we would do that today. I don't think we should do that today in a movie that is for entertaining people. Mm -hmm. It does feel like there are not many movies particularly blockbusters and particularly blockbusters that remain people really continue to like this movie mm -hmm. right like this yeah. continues to be like a mainstay of usa network <laughs> on a sunday yeah. and there are just not many movies that have this kind of like real world violence attached to them mm. um and for it to continue to sort of make its way through without necessarily being hampered by that in people's minds is really wild to me I'm curious about, we're sort of talking about sort of broadly the feelings about this movie. I'm curious about how you two feel about it. What's your relationship to this movie? I definitely like it. Like, I definitely, if this were on TV, I would be like, I will watch this, you know. And when I saw it in the theater, I was 19 or 20, and I was like, that was great. I loved it. It seemed to have themes. I like it when an action movie seems to have themes. I feel smart. Great. And then coming back to it, uh, you know, in the past few years, I've, sort of just been delighted to return to the Nolan Batman movies and put them in conversation with the other Batman movies and be like, these movies are like, they think they have this perspective, which I think is really silly. Like, I think if you break down the alleged philosophies of all of these, they don't make any sense, but also they perfectly document like the America in which I was a young adult. And like, that didn't make sense either. Like, I just feel like they're these in a way that nothing else has been 
Because there were so many movies, like, you know, like Syriana we talked about on the show recently, or like movies about the Iraq war that like people just don't remember anymore. This one, I do think just sort of distills that time and what we believed or felt we had to believe. So I remember seeing in the theater and being like stoked about a lot of things in it. Like just seeing the first clown mask in the movie. Yeah. I think it treated, I mean, obviously like Heath Ledger treated the Joker so beautifully in this movie, but I think the movie is the best tribute to the Joker in film form for sure. Mm. I haven't seen the Joker movie that you just talked about, but like it honors the spirit in a really interesting way while speaking to a lot of stuff that was happening in, in that particular moment. And it is a lot of fun, like outside of the convoluted elements to it. I think it's like a lot of fun for such a dour movie. Like yes. there's so many things I do like about this movie and I love what is beautifully parodied in Lego Batman, which we're going to do at some point <laughs> in the show is showing the codependent relationship between the Joker and Batman Yes, that happens so quickly that illustrates two fucked up men who just need each other in order to have any reason or rationale like it's beautiful and I remember being in the theater thinking this part this is so fun to the point where I was so fucking disappointed when we had to spend another 45 minutes on a sequel that they tried to cram into it. Aubrey, yeah. you said you watch this movie a lot. What What is your take on it? So I have a real penchant for action movies, regardless of their quality. <laughs> yeah. The best action movie is a 6.1 on IMDb. That's the sweet spot. <laughs> the greatest. So... I will say I went through a long phase in my 20s in particular of going to see every new Liam Neeson movie that came mm. out, every new Nick Cage movie that came out. Just like, Which is like one a year for about 10 years there, right? Oh, yeah. So this has like all of the payoff. I would mm. say that this has all of the payoff of like that I'm looking for in an action movie, which is like chases and punching and one-liners and Morgan Freeman for some reason. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I'm just like, it's all there. Yeah. I'm getting everything I need out of this. It scratches similar itches for me as like a Bond movie does, yeah. which is just like, oh, you just made this thing that has a bunch of sort of like doodly kind of Christopher Nolan-y, like it's really complicated kind of stuff to it, but also hits all the high notes of like all of the payoffs yeah. mm -hmm. of the beating up of the crime fighting of the blah, blah, blah. All of those sorts of things are there. I will also say this was a movie like I am a person who is off and on at different points in my life, profoundly anxious or profoundly depressed and constantly trying to convince people around me that the world is darker <laughs> than they think it is. Mm -hmm. So this was a movie where I was like, Guys, see, <laughs> I was right all along. Like, <laughs> Aubrey, do you know the question we typically ask at the end of the show? And if you do, um, would you ask it of the group? <laughs> yes. Who's the daddy, everybody? <laughs> <laughs> Who's the daddy of the Dark Knight? I mean, again, I feel like this is like oops all daddies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's, let's look at our candidates here. Okay. So we have Commissioner Gordon about whom very little can be said by me. We have Batman himself. We have Alfred. We have Lucius Fox. We have a lot of, like, also random side guys. We have Eric Roberts as a gangster, which I always appreciate. We have Anthony Michael Hall as the news. We have the mayor, who's just a random hottie, whose name I forget. Oh, Nestor Carbonell, the man <laughs> born wearing eyeliner. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have the Joker. You know, okay, for me personally, the Joker is the daddy because 
Something I feel like we all need to talk about more as a society is that the Joker literally says to Batman, you complete me. (laughs) That's beautiful. Like, he knows what his deal is. Nobody else knows what their deal is. I also love when, you know, he proposes to kill the Batman and the various uh, gangsters who he has assembled is like, well, why didn't you do it already? Why are you telling us about it? He's like... If you're good at something, never do it for free. <laughs> yeah, totally. That is a fantastic lesson. <laughs> yeah. And just and the Joker is like, I don't care what his backstory is. He doesn't need a backstory because he has a coherent presence now. He's he wants to kill the Batman and he got some scars somehow and he feels it necessary to wear a lot of makeup. And they're like, war paint. And it's like, no, I think we can just call it makeup. Makeup is fine. <laughs> and it's really like this is a story about Batman having a chance at intimacy and pushing it away. Batman wants Maggie Gyllenhaal to come, you know, live with Bruce Wayne and be his love. And who even knows what their relationship would involve? Because it's not like either of them have hobbies. Um, but really, like, he isn't Bruce Wayne. He's Batman. And the Joker wants Batman and he wants them to just torment each other until the end of time. And they should have just done that. <laughs> Aubrey, what's, what's your take? So like on the movies terms, right? Like if I'm thinking about sort of the movie itself, I think this movie doesn't exist without the Joker. Like mm. it just doesn't, if it's Batman versus this sort of like crime syndicate, yeah. <laughs> who cares? <laughs> I don't know. Who cares? <laughs> Truly who cares? I think in my heart of hearts, I kind of feel like it's Lucius Fox. I'm so fascinated by that character. And I need like, I think Sarah, you mentioned earlier, like they should have a Lucius Fox spinoff move. Like I would watch the shit out of a Lucius Fox spinoff movie. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree with Aubrey's take. I I, I mean, I agree with yours. You can take too, Sarah, but my daddy would be Lucius for all these reasons. I, I just want to know, how he was approached initially. Like, I want to know what that conversation was like. Did he show promise and he was promoted in this arena? Like, did he have a special relationship with Bruce's dad? Like, what? I, I don't really want to know. Yeah. I'm glad that I don't know. But if I had to learn more about anybody, I'd want to know about this guy in particular. He's the only person also who has any charisma. <laughs> Alfred's charming. Uh, Alfred is charming, but like is just Alfred. He's toning it down. Yeah. (laughs) My impression of Alfred is the impression of Alfred from the trip. Over time, it's just become a caricature of itself. (laughs) So I'll take I'll take Lucius. I I agree. So to maybe connect this, I feel like superhero movies like are often an excuse for like men to have relationships with each other, which is also why I love heist movies Mm. like. A, you get to watch people do teamwork, which is amazing. And also, I think war, like these movies where typically men, there's a large group of them, they have to do something together and have a shared goal. And it's often like, you know, war or killing or... Can we take a leaf from like the British comedy playbook and just have like a movie about Bruce Wayne and Alfred like on a long road trip together? Like what if they had to go to Arizona to get that plane (laughs) it would be so good i would love that so much can you just tell us how you would like people to find you when when they're done listening sure you can find me at uh on twitter and instagram at your fat friend that's yr fat friend um you can find me at yourfatfriend.com Y-O-U-R, fat friend, just to make it confusing. Um, (laughs) You can read my book, What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat, which is out now, and you can listen to Maintenance Phase if you want to hear about Dr. Oz being 
a real story of some squandered talent. A real wicked witch, if you will, of the West. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, when he, he actually came and when the, the Wicked Witch of the East got crushed under that house, he came and he gave her some green coffee extract and she perked right up. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this episode of Wire Dads. Thank you so much to Aubrey Gordon, uh, of course, of Maintenance Phase and the author of What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat. It was truly, truly a delight to talk about this movie with Aubrey. We had the very, very best time. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick, who uh, produces the show and makes the show sound great and uh, produces music for the show, is also our music director. You can hear Carolyn's EP, Tear Things Apart, by looking up Carolyn Kendrick. She's at Carolyn kendrick.com and on you know twitter and instagram and the places that uh people who make music typically are <laughs> we are on twitter and instagram as well also at patreon in the coming weeks we have clueless we have the lord of the rings movies we have the shining uh what else is coming up here we have muriel's wedding so you're in for some treats and we look forward to sharing them with you soon all right that's it for now thank you